You are listening to The Last Aid Station on Mountain Bike Radio, your source of off-road news and highlights. Welcome to another episode of The Last Aid Station. This is Steve Hamlin. My trusty friend Mark Stover is here with me. What's going on, Mark? Not much. I've missed you terribly. (laughs) (laughs) It it seems like forever since we've actually done a full podcast. You did your your Jordan Wakeley interview, which... I have to give you big props for um, very good interview for people who haven't was, listened to. That was fun. I I uh, I enjoyed. I mean, really, actually, just the opportunity to talk with Jordan like that. Yeah, and you know, the guy's amazing. I mean, it's obvious he has a love for the sport. He's so humble. It's nice hearing like his perspective on things. Yeah. Um, and it's just always it's always cool to see someone that you only read about winning everything. Um, you know, talking about everything that goes into how he competes and trains and lives, for that matter. Um, and it's yeah. kind of cool to to hear that. And I'm I'm so glad you got a chance to interview him. Um, and then, of course, I did my own Cape Epic um, highlight show, um, which was just kind of dedicated to that whole stage race, um, probably the biggest stage race in the world. And now we're back to actually both of us together doing a full show. And it's I like these the best. So... Um, so we've got, we've been away for the better part of a month and we've got a bunch of racing, a bunch of news to go over. Um, some of it may not be completely new news anymore, but we're still going to throw it out there. Anything that affects endurance mountain bike racing or endurance off-road racing, kind of talk about it. Things are going to impact that part of the sport and then go over quite a few races that have occurred over the past four weeks. Of course, Steve was actually down there, uh, getting a chance to, ride that course and actually race that course. That's pretty um, cool. Additionally, lots of other types of racing are going on at the beginning of many of the series across the country. Some of the gravel racing has been going on. Uh, there's a ton of stuff going on and we're so glad that everyone's finally getting a chance to get out. It looks like most of the U S is under some favorable training weather, unless you're up there in the Northeast, which has got a big snowstorm over the weekend, but for the most part, most people are getting a chance to get some riding in, and that is always a good thing. So, how's it, how's it been going up your way? Uh, you know, I haven't I haven't ridden a ton. I've probably only ridden a, a few times since True Grit Race. The, I got back up north here, and the we've had some nice days, but then like it snowed the other day. I woke up and there was two inches of snow on the ground. I'm like, what What's going on here? I, I'm it's like no man's land for me. I oh fat bike racing did the true grit and i feel like i should be like winding down and getting ready for thanksgiving and christmas or something <laughs> it's like time to take some time no, off no, yeah yeah no rest for the weary man back yeah. on it you got a lot of racing coming up so. oh yeah um so let's start right off into the news we've got a big show want to get right into everything that's going on um and we were just talking about jordan wakely and it's a big gal soon now if you've been follow if you follow jordan wakely you know that he went from the end of fat bike season, or actually not even completely at the end of fat bike season, he left kind of toward the end of February and headed to the southwest, Tucson specifically, right after we recorded that last podcast. Um, and while he was down there, I think the first three or four days he was down there, ended up going over the bars, landing on his face um, with a broken jaw, ended up flying back to Michigan, getting surgery, and then the tough guy that he is, four days later, got back on a plane, headed back to Tucson to finish that uh, couple weeks of training that he had left for a training camp, so to speak. Yeah, he was actually, 
got on his bike the next day after the surgery for a run. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> likely he, getting he ready to about it in his rip interview. on the season. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, his jaw is obviously wired shut or has some type of, a, some type of appliance in there because it was obvious that, um, it did not look comfortable. Um, and to be able to get on a bike after that, um, breathing through his nose, probably, um, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. And, Here's to hoping that uh, Jordan gets back to exactly where it was and is um, smoking uh, the trails and finishing high on the podiums, if not top of the podium, as he always does. So um, I, I was actually really surprised at how well that interview came out, knowing that at that point, I think he was only about 10 days out. Yeah, it wasn't post, very far. For, <laughs> I was surprised that jaw. he was up for it. But uh, yeah, yeah, and big, he, big seemed to, he, yeah, he seemed to you know, carry on fine. Um, Great interview. So if you haven't had to get a chance to go back and listen to that, definitely a good interview. Um, on with the news. Um, so SRAM is pointedly making a statement that it is going to discontinue manufacture of mountain bike front railers completely. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty bold step. It's something that I think a lot of people kind of saw coming. Um, Last year when they bought Quark, I actually saw it on um, my end when I went to replace a Quark under warranty. Um, it was a 2 by 10 system power meter. Went to replace it under warranty, and they don't make 2 by 10s anymore um, in, on the Quarks. And so I had to choose a one by 11 Quark system as my warranty replacement. It's kind of weird. They actually released a video that was not an April Fool's video where they were talking about how um, it was a eulogy for the front derailleur for mountain biking and that you know, there's no need for it anymore and this and that and all that stuff. And they released that just before they released the announcement of the Eagle, which we'll get to in a second, the Eagle group set. But they've released two new group sets, the NX-111 and the Eagle 1x12. And there's no place for a rear or a front derailleur in that uh, in that place. So it's kind of an interesting step for them to take. Um, yeah, I hope but, my uh, hope I don't break my front derailleur then. Yeah, like I, 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 I think they're going to continue to make um, the systems that they have, but I have a feeling that um, any new um, progression is not going to have any type of front derailleur. Is it the parts. is it the NX? One by eleven stuff is that the the new SRAM stuff that's really it's, cheap, pretty. pretty yes, that's the it's the more it's the most inexpensive one by eleven system they make. It's like a is there an NX and a GX or something that's pretty uh, affordable? Or is it? I'm N, not sure about NX? the GX. I think it's NX is the okay. one by eleven. Um, guilty, I've been looking, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. I noticed that. Um, and then for something that somebody re- uh, released, the One Up Company released a 10 by 50 tooth and they seem to kind of rush it out there and rush the promotion. Everyone's like, why are they rushing this out there? 50 tooth, 11 speed. Eh, who cares? This is, you know, whatever. Um, why don't they just, you know, drop it down to, you know, drop down your front chain ring, you know, to like a 28, which is available. So you could have a 2846 versus a 28 by 50. Is it really a need for that? And then the reason that they kind of rushed this out there came two days later when SRAM released Eagle, which is their new 1x12 system that goes 10 to 50, 11 or 12 speed. Um, yeah. So 
at first I was completely against it. I just felt like, um, you know, Rich Dillon said it best. Uh, maybe this is where Eagle jumped the shark. Um, but, uh, but you know, the more I thought about it and the more I considered it, I'm actually kind of bummed now that I have the one by 11. Now I can't afford the Eagle MSRP on that group set is around three, three grand. Yeah. Um, and I find it hard to believe that it's probably any better than, um, the XO stuff. I mean, it's, Maybe it is, but I just can't imagine it's that much better. It's just going to give you it's going to give you a wider gear range without having as big a jumps between gears, right? Right. And you get, so you the, get an extra, you get an you get twelve gears to spread spread between ten to fifty versus. Yeah. Now 11. here's here's the way I look at it. If there was a segment of the sport where this could actually work, it very might. It very likely is endurance mountain bike racing for sure. Listen, listen, why I say that it's a, it's a race where you have stout climbs, sometimes super steep climbs mixed in with pavement where you have long, sometimes long valley roads or long sections of gravel. Um, and always the one by 11s were at a disadvantage, um, because you get some guy on a two by 10 who puts it up into his you know, a 4211, and he just rides away from you where he can pedal up to the, up to the RPMs he needs to. Yeah. This kind of equalizes that and actually makes a difference. Now, is there uh, an end point here? I mean, is the next one going to be a 13 speed and we're going to go 1055 or, you know, what, there's got to be a stopping point. I mean, you don't need all of these, Advancements. I think this is a big advancement, much bigger than the difference between one by ten was. This jump from one by eleven to one by twelve certainly makes sense in getting that big broad range. Um, I think it's the final answer to the transition. Final answer, yeah. And none of this stuff is intercompatible. Obviously, you're talking about you know gears. So pretty soon you have to make your rear. You're gonna have to. 29 is not going to be tall enough to handle the gear set on the back. <laughs> exactly. You shouldn't have to start worrying about the, the chain ring cutting your, your or the cassette cutting your the, uh, or, or cutting the sidewall of your tire. I don't yeah. know. Um, but eventually, um, but it's kind of cool. Um, it's kind of cool to see the progression, but also kind of to be on the receiving end when you've just upgraded to 11 and now there's 12. Yeah, and, but I, it's going to be, it's going to be a long time before it's affordable. I bet. Yeah. Um, well, that, you, you wonder though if um, um, other people aren't going to try to jump in on the bandwagon. Certainly, with one up going the the ten by fifty, yeah, it's just at the, the eleven you... speed, that may be a much quicker way to yeah. just <laughs> grab that. And you got to wonder when Wolf's Tooth is going to jump in on this and make everything affordable by taking a you know like a ten speed cassette and adding one more cog, and it makes yeah. an eleven speed, or it's taking just... the eleven speed and substituting. It'll be a lot cheaper to do than than getting the eagle certainly it's just that everything that's there right it's like shifter derailleur like you start adding it up i was doing that just to go to one by 11 and i was like "Ah, it's not worth it yet i'm gonna wait till i wear this stuff out yeah and and wolf's tooth always seems to be the the solution solvers and eventually they're gonna come up with something that'll make the difference um so away from industry news um into racing news and um a little blurb came across my social media 
Um, the current women's open series champion in the NUE is stepping away from the NUE series. So it seems after 56 NUE races, the Simrels might have had just enough and are looking for something new. I will say that the NUEC, NUE um, series offers all that they enjoy, and they certainly have been a big part of the NUE over the past seven, eight years. Um, but I think that um, there are several people that are starting to kind of slowly move away from the NUE. Um, Christian Tangi has slowly started to make it more of a fun thing. He's not taking it as seriously as we saw from his results at uh, True Grit. He was riding a six-inch travel bike at True Grit. Yeah, and he's out there just to have fun. Yeah. But I think I think slowly it's time um, you're going to start to see new competitors at the top of the series. Um, you know, Keck Baker is another one who um, it's nothing against the NUE, but just due to his personal situation and he's looking for new challenges, he's looking to step up at the marathon distance. Doesn't have the time to train for the hundred milers. Is looking for something a little bit shorter, and he seems to think that he excels much better at those 50 to 60 mile distances. And so even though you will see him at some NUE events toward the end of the year, you're going to see him early in the season doing a lot of the big marathon distance events, marathon nationals, uh, whiskey 50 grand junction off-road, all of those kinds of events. So you're going to actually see both men's women and women's open series champions, not necessarily competing for the title this year, unless Keck um, has a, change of heart and really competes in a lot of NUE events in the second half of the season. Simmerals uh, so. were, uh, they were out to true grit. Yeah, they were out to true grit. Yep. yep. But I think they're looking at it more as they were having fun and doing the event. Yeah. Um, and I don't think, um, I think they're, I think they're having met them and talked to them. I think they're looking for a new challenge. Um, they both, you know, they both came into, NUE from triathlon and adventure racing and they got into mountain biking and they've done this for a while and I think they're just looking for something different and there is nothing at all wrong with that no, at all there's can, a ton yeah. of great stuff out there to go do and yeah there's a ton there's of other races out all. there as well right yeah there and, and as you and I were talking before the show there's people that get into this because they're cyclists and they want to do difficult races there's also people that get into this from the adventure aspect of things and just are looking for a new adventure. And once they complete it, it starts to maybe start to lose a little bit of its appeal. Um, and they move on to something else. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that at all. Aside from just the NUE races, right? If you're just, if you're into the adventure of just endurance mountain bike races, I mean, if you look at them, right, it'll take you 20 years to cover them all. You know what I mean? Oh, so, right. So if yeah. you keep going back to the same ones every year, you're missing out on a lot of other races. Right. And that's, and that's exactly what um, I'm trying to do this year. You know, just the bucket list events, the ones that look really cool, never got a chance to do it. Let's come and try them. Yeah. You know, versus always having to go back and try to compete against yourself or against others, compete against last year's time or la- the year before it's time, try to beat it. Actually go out and do something new, you know, and then the, it's a whole different way of approaching a race. You know, the first time you do a, a race, you always remember it because of all the little trials and tribulations and, second guessing yourselves at you know different points in the race about how you should have approached it it's just kind of cool it's a different feeling than coming back and doing the race again yeah yeah um what else have you got you got any other news out there yeah there's a few things i was going to run through some races coming up and stuff but the uh gravel worlds I, and i'm i'm a little bit new to this yet but are you do you know what the gravel worlds are mark uh i do um it's in the midwest is it a 
kind of a real thing? Is it a poke? Is it a? It's it's kind of it's no it's well, uh, it's a real thing. It's a real race, um, but it's not necessarily the world championships in the traditional okay. sense. UCI kind of thing. Um, it's kind of it's it's as real as Fat Bike World was this year in Crested Butte. Okay, um, it's as real as um, you know what, whatever had you know the Alley Cat World Championships or yeah. whatever. Um, it's just not sanctioned necessarily by anybody, and certainly anybody that wants to call themselves Gravel Worlds could go out there and call themselves Gravel Worlds. This has kind of been it's. Um, in the Midwest, and I can't remember exactly where it is, but I, I think saw it's people headed Nebraska, out Oklahoma, somewhere yeah. in there. But anyhow, it's it's a true uh, race. It's a pretty long distance. It's gravel. Um, I think this is the second year they're having it, at okay. least uh, on a large scale kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, it is a real thing. Um, and it's a pretty competitive event from what I understand. So Yeah, I just saw um, it on the social media feeds. I saw multiple yeah. people signing up for it from Minnesota and I was curious about it. So, yeah. uh, something else that I found pretty cool or interesting is, uh, Tim Johnson, uh, set a Mount Washington winter record on a fat bike, climbed it in an hour, 45 minutes, 48 seconds while winds were reaching like 49 miles an hour recorded up there. But and I'm not familiar with the the roadside and the event that was going on. I just this is something I ha- ca- happened to catch in one of the news networks. But um, yeah, there's so a- he's not. It, I think if I remember right, I mean he was just doing that as a challenge. Yeah, um, there wasn't yep. any kind of event because yeah, he was by um, himself. It generally, was yeah, generally, challenge. it would be right. It would. You're lucky if you can figure out a day in the winter when you can get to the top of Mount Washington. Um, that's, so that's what it sounded like the situation was. Like there was a yeah, I was reading a write up on it, and there was like a. Yeah an edge where he was like basically getting blown sideways off the road. Yeah. And it's pretty impressive that time. Yeah. Um, the record is held by Tom Danielson who set the record, quote unquote record 49 minutes and change or something like that. But that was also when he was doping and blah, blah, blah. But anyhow, the record's generally accepted to be somewhere around 50 minutes or so to do it on a fat bike, um, in an hour 45 in those kind of conditions. I thought yeah, it was cool. that's pretty cool. That's kind of cool. Since yeah, we've, since we've covered a little bit of fat biking, so right, yeah, there, yeah. That's I mean, that's that's a really cool thing. I bet the the ride down was cold as hell. Yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah. The uh, and speaking of other, uh, you know, other events and stuff that are out there, and this some of this is up in my neck of the woods, but uh, the Shawamagan Hundred folks, uh, they all should have received their confirmation. There's a lottery for that, but that race is growing. It's uh, 350 person capacity now and uh i've heard it's a great race and uh it's likely to show up on my calendar soon but it's a race out in june it's a hundred mile endurance race in wisconsin uh those people know who's in there the margie gessick registration it's still open that we've talked about it a few times but it's opened up a couple of times they reached a cap that's the one they keep yeah they raise the cap they reach a cap they raise it yeah yeah because more people than want in it's it's when they first opened it up and it closed up in like five or six days or something and everyone who'd done it had pretty much re-entered it. But anyways, I'm really pumped about that one. Uh, another really big race in the Midwest and those trails are, it's going to be great. And, and, uh, yeah, there's a lot of races there, but it's going to get spread out really quick. Cause there's some big climbs and, and, uh, there's some, there's some technical trail there that's going to, it's going to be a fun race. So I'm, I'm glad it's growing big. 
Uh, and these are, again, these are some of my area, but the Matahe 100 registration is still open as well. Price goes up each month on that, but uh, I'll be out there myself to give it a, a second shot. And I, if you're looking for a, a one day endurance challenge that is mm-hmm. like a big mental test, yeah. this, this is your race. Uh, that's. Yeah. I've actually considered, and I actually talked to Ben about this recently. Um, I found some really cheap airfare. Um, the Mata Hay 100, because it's kind of, my August is pretty full. Yeah. Um, that's generally, I think it's the second weekend in August. August uh, 6th this year. Six. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm looking, the Mata Hay 150 is likely going to happen. Yeah. And that is the full distance of the Mata Hay Trail. Um, certainly, if you've done the Mata Hay 100, you probably yeah. can't imagine doing another 50 miles of it. Um, but I'm lucky to have the experience of never having done the Matahe. So um, <laughs> I may throw my hat into the ring for the 150, which is actually takes place September. like a month and a half later, like middle of September, third week yep. in September. Um, and I found some really cheap airfare to get up there. And, awesome. Uh, we'll see. Um, but th- that would be a great end of season kind of wrap up. It for would me. be. Um, yep. be a good one. Um, so. Then- of course, NUE is kicking off and Kohuta's coming up and then the Mohican in June, both Mark and I will be there. Um, but I, I think I'm excited about the Mohican because to me that's a, a central race that can bring a lot of the Midwest and Southeast racers together. Yep. Uh, yeah, and it also, I mean, there's there's tons of people there. Um, you'd be surprised where those people um, do well because you'll see mid-Atlantic guys, you'll see East Coast guys, you'll see Northeast, yeah, like New England guys, you'll see Canadian people there. Um, and it's just, uh, it's a, it's a big, big race. And heck last year we had a bunch of Colorado riders there. We had Marley Dixon and Josh Tostado there. We had uh Gordon Wakeley was there. I mean, it was a kind of an all-star field of everybody yep. from the mountain region East. Um, so it's accessible it's to a, a lot of people. It's a very accessible race. Um, it doesn't have the big mountain climbs that are typical of the NUE, which is really cool. That's not to say that it's not hilly. Because you think in Ohio, oh, it's not hilly, but it's pretty darn hilly. There's um, a lot of elevation it's in got that race. Some, it's also got some amazing single track, and probably of all the NUE races, some of my favorite single track anywhere. Sweet. Um, it starts off with like I don't know, twenty five, thirty miles of some just amazing single track. Goes out on some gravel roads, um, some pretty hilly gravel roads, and comes back, and then you hit another section of that same trail system on the way back into the finish line. So. Um, it's a pretty cool setup, always a good time. Um, they kind of take over a whole campground. They take over the downtown on the start. You start right in the downtown uh, of this little town in Ohio. Um, so it's kind of cool. It's a, it's definitely a unique race. And if I'm not mistaken, it's the biggest race in the NUE as far as total number of starters um, because they start the 100K and the 100 milers all together. Um, but it's pretty impressive to see you know a field of 700 or 800 riders all hitting that first big climb out of town. So going to be good. Yeah, it's going to be good. And we'll be there together and we're going to figure out something, some kind of cool thing to do maybe Saturday night after the race uh, for all our listeners. Yeah. I just thought it was good to mention, mention all these different races that, you know, sometimes people listen to the show because they're trying to learn about the sport and what races to do and things in their areas. So, and, and, and speaking of places to figure out what races to do, Um, If you haven't been to mountain bike radio recently, um, 
very recently, probably in the last two days or so, uh, Ben, um, who is the guru of mountain bike radio, has switched the format over to the cap of the endurance calendar and the fat bike calendar, which of course now is a little bit out of season. But the endurance calendar, if you're looking for a race on a specific weekend or you're looking for a race um, in a certain area, you can go there, you can look through all of the uh, races for the entire calendar year. There's races always being added as um, those are getting confirmed and things like that. But you can actually go in there and actually plan your whole schedule out for the whole year, have the links to the sites, the the registration codes, the you name it, the distances, all the specific details about those races are there on the calendar. And by far, even if I wasn't part of the mountain bike radio, I would tell you that that is the best calendar out there for endurance mountain bike racing. It is the most complete and you'll get the most information from it. Yep, so. bar none. I, before I started doing this, that's where I, that's where I started learning about races. So. so, let's get into some racing. That's why everybody's here. That's why everybody's listening. The True Grid Epic. First race of the NUE season. Here we are. With the traditional running of the True Grid Epic put on by Simon Chacon and the Grow Racings Group. Truly, truly epic with unique terrain, warm temperatures, and a very early date for those coming out of the winter and heading there to race 100 miles. Taking place in picturesque St. George's, Utah, the course has a little bit of everything you would expect in the southwestern U.S. Two laps of a 50-mile course. The race also includes staggered starts for different categories and to decrease racers all fighting for the single-track entrance as well as a little bit of an equalizer for the masters, single speed, and women racers who could not take advantage of the faster open men's riders to gain time on their competition early using faster groups to do so. Um, the, group, the course itself takes in many iconic trails in that area, including the Zen Trail, Rim Runner, Poppy, Barrel Roll, the Waterfall, and it's mostly wide open terrain covering some sandy washes, Jeep Trail, loose rocky climbs, and boilerplate hard rock and technical riding with little to no shade on the course. Steve actually was out there, got a chance to take in the course, got a chance to race. What do you think, Steve? What do you think of that course out there? It's awesome. There's a, one, there's some stuff I've never ridden before in my life. And then uh, it's a really cool course because it's about every type of riding you can think of. So there's some like crazy rocky descents with some big drops uh, there's i certainly hike a bike some stuff there's some rocky climbs uh where you're kind of balancing going uphill then there's some there's some long sustained rough gravel climbs and then there's some crazy fast flowy stuff through some valleys where i mean you're catching air whether you want to or not over berms and it's awesome is it's a really fun course and then you get to do the, the laps twice, right? So you can try to perfect it the second time if, as long as you're, you know, not like me and burned yourself out the first lap. <laughs> now, did you get a chance to pre-ride or no? I pre-rode the uh, Zen Trail Loop the, the afternoon before, uh, which was a good idea because I got my crash out of the way the day before. <laughs> did you hit some uh, cactus? Pull no, out it's, you know, oh. you don't have to crash that hard on rocks to end up bleeding in a few different spots. <laughs> yep but so good stuff fun yeah so uh this year at the race um steve's participating with a star-studded nue field on hand 
including reigning champions in the NUE, Roger Massey in the 50-plus division, Gordon Wadsworth in the single-speed division, and Brenda Simrel in the women's division. Also present were plenty of folks who have seen the NUE podium in the past. Um, Marley Dixon, Corey Larrabee, uh, Taylor Ledine, Carrie Smith, uh, Josh Testato, Mike Multibano, Jeff Clayton, Brian Schwarm, Greg Golay, Jeff Kirkhoff, Christian Tangi, Lee Simrel, David Jolin. It's additionally a very strong contingent arrives of mountain and west coast riders um, that is a very competitive field despite not having a high volume number of racers compared to many NUE events. With less than 100 racers started and many of them having competed for podium spots, it was definitely going to be fast. You could have guaranteed that. And for this year, a large group of Costa Rican riders, or Ticos to their friends, were present after getting a taste of NUE events last year at the Rincon Challenge. And they are rumored to be competing at many events in the NUE this year in search of a potential overall title in the men's and women's side. Also included in this year's race was a 50-mile race, which had been held previously, but now was the inaugural event of the NUE Shorter Marathon Series. Those racers would start off nearly two hours after the 100-milers and complete just one of the 50-mile laps. In the men's open race, a fast start that caught a few riders unprepared quickly dissolved the group down to just seven riders that had to deal with some early morning rains, which left part of the course a bit muddy, and played with some havoc with pedals and drivetrains for that lead group. That front group contained two Costa Rican riders, Luis Anderson Meja and Jonathan Carballo, Tostado, Ladine, Kirkhoff, and Smith. Through the first pass of the barrel roll and the technical aspects of the course, whittled that front group down to just Tostado, Smith, two Costa Rican riders, and Ladine, bridging back after dealing with some issues in that mud. It was evident quickly that the foreign riders were out for blood as they surged for an uphill section and quickly had the three chasers with a two-minute deficit, according to the checkpoints. Kerry Smith would quickly recognize the issue and head off in search of the front runners with Ladine in tow, forcing Tostado to back off the pace and attempt to recover to find his way to the front group soon after. Soon Ladine was off on his own, descending the waterfall section on the second lap with a winner-take-all approach. A bit risky, but knowing the others were likely walking that section, he threw caution to the wind. Ladine soon had what he thought was a second-place rider in his sights. He would later relate that he was that the Costa Rican rider was having a bit of a mechanical issue and asked if he needed help. Later to find out that it was a slow leak of Maya's front wheel. Knowing he had little time to slow with Tostado and Smith chasing from behind less than five minutes back and not getting a response from the Costa Rican rider, he headed off. Now in the lead, but thinking that another rider was still ahead. It would later be realized that Carballo had taken a wrong turn and been passed on the course by Ledeen without ever realizing it. Ledeen would relate that pushing the pace in the final miles was one of the hardest things he's ever done, and soon he was crossing the line, winner of the True Grit Epic for 2016 in a time of 6 hours and 56 minutes for 92.50 cyclery. Behind being able to limp and then fix his front tire, Luis Anderson Meja would roll in less than three minutes later for second, representing the Extra Loan Economy Cooperative in Costa Rica. Third place would go to an absolutely flying Carrie Smith of the Hub Bicycle Shop, 
in just over seven hours and one minute, who had begun eating to the deficits of those in front and had also caught and passed Carballo on the trail. Carballo, Anderson Mayhaw's teammate, would finish two minutes later, holding off Swift with Santa Cruz rider Josh Testato by five minutes, who would finish in fifth. In the single speed division, it was complete drama for sure. From the gun, a group of riders surged, and pretty soon the single speed grouping looked like it was his own peloton, with Gordon Wadsworth off the front a bit in the opening of miles, but chased by a gaggle of single speeders in the form of Multibano, Shannon Buffelli, John Haddock, Steve Mills, Kip Bice, Corey Larrabee. But soon, just an hour into the race, Wadsworth was seen sitting trailside, fixing a vicious sidewall tear that left him 15 minutes or so down on the group, but also lost him the 8 or 10 minutes he had likely gained in the opening miles. Wadsworth would later relate to having to pull himself together a bit, soft-pedaling initially, then realizing he could still race this, and set off to chase down the leader, who threw the first checkpoint for 12 minutes up on the current NUE single-speed champ. Through the rest of lap one, Wadsworth chased and the lead group continued to become smaller, losing riders to attrition until it was just down to Bofelli, Multibano, who was definitely feeling the effects of some early season racing, and Larrabee, with Mills having now gone off the front to assume the single-speed lead. The remaining single-speed riders behind were getting absorbed by the Roanoke Cannibal, charging hard from behind, and soon Wadsworth was on to that lead single-speed group. Wadsworth made quick work of the passes and was off in search of Mills, who held what seemed to be an insurmountable gap in the closing miles. Mills would cross the line first, but quickly realized with a conference with officials that he had missed a small four to five mile section of the course and headed back out to retrace his steps and complete it. In the meantime, Gordon Wadsworth would finish in first place for Blue Ridge Cyclery in seven hours, 35 minutes. Corey Larrabee would finish just minutes later for second, and Mills would return, finally riding, the, riding that missed section, and then pass Buffelli as he returned toward the finish line to take third, finally finishing just seven minutes down on Wadsworth, despite an estimated additional seven to nine miles. In the women's division, it was a huge win for Angela Parra of the Costa Rican squad, who simply had no match in the women's division. She simply rode away and put time into all comers throughout the day, despite technical terrain, which is certainly not her strong point, and especially this terrain, which was completely alien to her. Christy Olson rode like a woman possessed and trying to keep her close. In doing so, she gapped huge deficits back to the chasers. Behind her, Liz Carrington, Chase Edwards, and Marley Dixon would alternatively Occupy the third spot before Dixon put in a huge effort in the first half of lap two to definitely put herself up onto the final step for the podium. Up front, Angelina Parra of the Extralum Economy Cooperative takes the win in eight hours and eight minutes. Second to Christy Olson of Crazy Peddler Fast Fish 13 minutes later. And the final spot goes to Marley Dixon of Pivot DNA Cycling in 846, nearly 25 additional minutes down on second place. In the Masters race, plenty of talent on the line for the first race of the year. And early, the race evolved into two past NUE champions in the form of Golay and Massey, with a possible heir to the crown in the form of Jeff Clayton. Golay was able to gain some time in the early miles, but soon was off course and backtracking to get back to the course where he had been passed by Massey, 
Clayton and David Jolin. Over lap two, the gap from Golay to the front was dropping, and soon he passing first Massey, then Jolin, before setting off after Clayton still three minutes in front in the closing miles. As those closing miles slipped by, some may consider giving up or celebrating, depending on your perspective, but Golay would catch Clayton and roll into the final mile with him wheel to wheel. Clayton took the front position and started the sprint from there with Golay seeming to sit in a little too long before coming around. And then Clayton missed the final turn, riding just off the edge of a chicane area that allowed Team Chico's Golay to take the fast line to the finish, winning in 7 hours, 57 minutes, with Clayton just seconds later from the Georgia Neurosurgical Institute. In third, Stark Fellows David Jolin would take uh, third nearly 30 minutes later with Rare Disease Cycling Roger Massey taking fourth and Sten Hertzen of Molotero in fifth. Boom! <laughs> <laughs> um, you know what? Like, I, as I was researching this and talking to all these guys about that, that race, I mean, they... Um, there was some serious racing going on. This is early in yeah. the season. I'd expect this to be going down at, at Wilderness or... At Shenandoah, but man, all sub, of the sub seven fields, hours. all of the fields had some serious racing going on, and even races where um, they were all putting in amazing performances. Even races where it seemed like a runaway, such as the women's field, where Angela Parra or Angela Parra had done so well. Behind her, there was some racing going on. Oh yeah. Well, in the Masters race, it came down to a sprint finish. Um, you know, you've got all these guys that are have all been on the NUE podiums at one time or another. And then in the single speed division, you got four or five guys, six guys all riding together in a pack. I mean, come on, man. I mean, that's some, that is some serious racing this early in the season. And the times indicate that they're not because everyone's out of shape. The times indicate that they're going as fast as anyone ever has on those courses. So, yeah, yeah. I was impressed with, uh, Wadsworth, he he was trailside twice, working on that tire. <laughs> in the in the first twelve fourteen miles of that race, and that yeah, so it's it's humbling when you're you're thinking like oh, I'm gonna have to probably walk this section on my two by ten, and then here comes a guy on a single speed, just hauling tail past you up this rocky section climb, and I'm like, all right, I'm gonna have to pedal now. <laughs> <laughs> And then, and then to realize the only reason I even got to see him on the trail is because he had two flats. Yeah. That was just crazy. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's kind of cool when I'm uh, talking to him. He goes through, you know, the top athletes still all go through the same bad periods that everybody else goes through. Um, they just, you know, they work through it and they know that uh, yeah. they have the experience and the knowledge um, and maybe like a little bit of tenaciousness to know. Doesn't matter, man. You got to keep going. But I mean, Wadsworth even admitted that you know he had a period where, after the second flat and him spending you know losing nearly thirty minutes, um, that he thought his race was over. It's a bad period. He'll soft pedal. Hundred miles himself, a long ways. Then he pulled himself together and said, "You know what? It's not over yet. I'm going to still go out there and see what I can do." Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens with um, Mills. Um, man, that guy's fast. Uh, the fact that. You know, he finished in third, just seven minutes down on Wadsworth, but had to go back out and do another seven, eight miles. Yep. 
racing's racing, but I mean, that, that means that he was doing a faster average time. Now, you know, Wadsworth also had, you know, flat tires and stuff like that, but it'll be kind of cool to see those guys eventually race head to head, hopefully, um, and see who comes out. I mean, that's some, that's some serious racing and it's not like this is a specific kind of course. I mean, this has got the climbing, this has got the technical riding, this has got, this is mountain biking. And so yeah. it'll be kind of cool to see what happens in the future when those guys meet again, because I am sure they will be meeting somewhere down the road. Um, hopefully, um, and, um, this is relatively new, but um, hopefully he continues with the MUE series. Um, he certainly, certainly got the skill set for it, evidently. So, yeah, good coverage, Mark, on uh, on True Grit, good race, and uh, it was it was pretty cool to be out there doing that uh, yeah. myself. But do uh, you want to cover what will probably well probably it will be the last fat bike related race until next year, anyways? Yeah, uh, unless somebody plans to go to Antarctica in July or something like that. <laughs> yeah and but, what a fat bike race it is yeah so the uh i did a rod trail invitational um there is this is a huge race and i've got some information on the the thousand mile race and the 350 mile race and if you covered this one before in the past mark um i have but mostly just uh in discussing it kind of um, yeah that's what yeah, I thought. It was mostly yeah, it's mostly in um just record setting years and it's things like that. It's such so. a big it's such I mean a thousand miles on a fat bike, but it's it's crazy. So I'll I'll start with a thousand the thousand mile and I will just share a couple of things that I had, yeah. had learned it's, from it. You know, this race is more I mean certainly there's somebody who does it fastest. They're they're starting I to race think, it though. <laughs> right, they are starting to race it, but I think it's still you know, the first thing is, is you really can't, um, you can't ever make this, there be a record, um, for this course because oh, man, it's it's change year to year change. Yeah. And it's, there's not a, and this is something I learned kind of digging in, you know, looking into it is you have to hit the checkpoints, but, but apparently there's not a specific trail to follow. Uh, right. So you, now, you there- choose your path to the checkpoints. Right, uh, but there are trails. Yeah, there's trails, and, and that's why a, that's yeah. why guys that have done this numerous years, um, they have the knowledge to yep. do better in years to come because they know what trails not to take, what trails to take, what is actually faster. You're crossing I mean, lakes. It's a sh- right. Yeah. It's just because it's a shorter distance doesn't necessarily mean it be faster because you may have to go over a three thousand foot peak. Right. Um, you know, so it's it's very it's very much a as much an adventure as you can put into a race. Oh yeah. Like, so, uh, on the thousand mile race, we're talking 11, 12 days out there. And I mean, that just puts a whole new perspective on it. But if you actually think about being able to cover a thousand miles in 11 or 12 days in that type of terrain and conditions, it's pretty crazy. And, uh, by day two, uh, Phil Hofstetter had actually distinguished himself already as a clear leader, and by day three had an entire day's lead on the next next racers. Yeah. Uh, at one point, broke broke a crank set about six hundred miles in, and you can't get parts out there. He had to sit in one of the checkpoints in a small town uh, and wait for a crank set to get flown in on like bush plane. <laughs> yeah. And then he kept breaking a chain, and his chain got so short that he couldn't couldn't use it anymore. And so he sat in another place and waited for a chain to get flown in. Wow. And uh, pretty wild. And 
all that being said, he's he still finished. He still finished the thousand mile first in, in eleven days, five hours and fifteen minutes. Actually, the third best time on record. Yeah. Um, conditions up there this year were just like everywhere else is is warm, and mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily mean it was better trails either there were some really really tough sections of trails up there too and i'll talk about that when we talk into the 350 mile yeah. race a little bit but um bill fleming uh jay cable and kyle amstead are finished they all finished together um in 12 days and nine hours yeah. uh, pretty 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 crazy uh, yeah that that race is um you can say what you want about bike packing, like it's, um, all the other stuff. You know how hard all the different, but they all have their individual challenges. But this one kind of has like the global challenge, like everything. It's, it's nuts. I mean, they're a taking challenge. a bivy like trailside. I mean, the and weather is literally right. The, the weather literally can kill you. Yeah. I mean, this isn't this isn't um, you know where you're going to get cold or hypothermic or uh, you know it's going to be too hot or it's going to be. I mean, literally the, the weather, one wrong move, one period of, and I do it all the time when I'm riding long distance, you know, you kind of get hazy, you get forgetful, you can't remember what you're doing straight, yep. you know, you make stupid mistakes, like, like endurance mountain bike, you make a stupid mistake, you make, take a wrong turn or whatever, but this, like literally you make the wrong decision at this race, you could die. I mean, yep. it's, um, it's some serious stuff. Now they've got all the safety stuff kind of built in doesn't guarantee their safety, but you know, they're all carrying, you know, survival gear and things like that. But yeah, it's, it's a whole different level of, uh, racing or yep. bike packing or adventure. If and you it's, will. So. I think last year or maybe the year before they saw temperatures of minus 40 and 50 degrees. And, and this year, yeah. this year was warm, but they were still seeing like minus 10. And, and I was reading somebody's story and they, they mentioned that, uh, it's like, okay, well, they figure they got about three minutes in order to get into their bivy sack, you know, once they stop moving, you know, yeah. because you're, you're dressed for movement and then all of a sudden you're going to stop in it. Um, it, it, uh, it changed it. And actually maybe that was on the, the podcast, uh, a girl who rides, she did an interview with, uh, I think it's Leah Grun, which I recommend it's on mountain bike radio feed. Check it out. If yeah. you want to know more about the race, but there's a 350 mile distance too. The shorter race, right? 350 miles. But uh, Jay Peterberry was up there, and uh, him, Tim Bernstein, Tyson Flaherty, and Charlie Tree were the early race leaders up to about mile 90. Uh, Jeff Oatley came in the door just just as uh, Peterberry was headed out. Uh, Peterberry at one point had grabbed the wrong boots at one of the, the checkpoints, headed out the door, and was pedaling thinking he had ice built up because they'd been dealing with ice built up all day. <laughs> and uh, Dan Dittmer went to grab his boots to head out the door to find out somebody had his boots. So he, he threw on Jay's boots and headed down the trail chasing him and, uh, to swap boots. And just a few different things that kind of happened along the ride. There was one point in the trail where there was so many moose prints punched through the surface of the snow that they couldn't ride it at all. Uh, it, it was like this soft snow and a moose had come through and apparently had like walked all the way up the trail. And then mm-hmm. it all froze, and then I, I guess it snowed like four or five inches on top of it, and so you couldn't, you just couldn't ride it at all. Right. But uh, Tim Bernstein and Tyson Flaherty rode into Rome. They were uh, both got a short rest, but Bernstein was able to get out first and hammer his way to the finish. So Tim Bernstein finished first in one day, twenty three hours and forty five minutes, 
fourth cyclist to ever complete it under two days. Pretty pretty crazy. Yeah. And then uh, Tyson Flaherty finished a couple hours later in second place. Mm-hmm. I saw um, that Jay had made an interesting post. Um, he had ridden through a section that, you know, this is a perfect example of, you know, how the conditions change and how there really can never be a record for that that distance and how um, just because the conditions are good for you don't mean they'll be good for the people behind him. But he made a, a post that he had ridden uh, just, he was just two hours in front of someone else who posted a video. And the guy posted a video of a, literally a river that was probably, I don't know, 50 feet, 60 feet wide of just glacier melt, just roaring through like with oh, rapids that. and stuff like that. And Jay marked, I went through there two hours ago and I rode across it because it was frozen. Wow. So literally in two I, hours. I missed that. I just didn't a, see that. Yeah, it was just a raging river that was completely impassable that he had a, someone had to ride down all the way around it, um, you know, adding all kinds of time and mileage to it. Did, again, it makes it adventurous. So yeah, it they, doesn't mean that you can follow a single trail to get there. There so. were some spots where some of the racers had to put some uh, waders on. Wow. So, uh, in the women's race, there was there was actually quite a few women that were up there and that did the 350 miler. The uh, the leading women, Heather Best, uh, was out front. They made blazing fast time for the first 130 miles uh, to what they call the Finger Lake check-in. And Tracy Peterberry actually arrived just in time to see her husband, Jay Peterberry, headed out the door of that checkpoint. And that gives you an idea how fast the women were moving. Mm-hmm. However, the pace for the next 35 miles was a drastic change. And they actually had like 15 miles of hike-a-bike I'd seen reported. Wow. Because of unrideable soft trail conditions. And then uh, Tracy and Jay Peterberry actually were able to join up in Roan, and they rode to the finish together, with Tracy ended up finishing as the second woman overall and finished in less than three days, 350 miles. Uh, Heather Best arrived at the finish as the first-place woman with her husband, Jeff Oatley, and Heather was actually the sixth-place overall finisher for the 350-miler, uh, finishing a little better than two two and a half days. Cool pretty crazy yeah there's some i i still it's not something i want to do but i'm completely in awe of those who do it i'm Uh, intrigued by it shocked i shocked yeah i'm i'm in awe of it and there's like a part of me that is really really interested in obviously this is like you got to have some experience to do this but it's i'm nervous about racing in those type of conditions but i'm i'm intrigued enough that next winter i maybe i'd maybe try like the Tuscobia 80 or something. Yeah. Cool. And now for something completely different. Um <laughs> uh, Love Valley Roubaix. And this is race number one of the Appalachian Grinder series, a series that also includes Pisgah Monster Cross, Bootlegger 100, Derby Roubaix, Wilson's Revenge, and Savage Cross over the course of the next five or six months or so. So Love Ru- Ru- Valley Roubaix starts and finishes in an old Western-style ghost town in the Brushy Mountains, uh, bordering the Western Carolina's True Mountain region and the rolling hills of the Piedmont. A course that was designed by Wes Davidson on legendary first-flight bicycles in Statesville, North Carolina. The course is comprised of 50 miles of rolling hills, with over 60% of it on packed dirt surfaces of backcountry roads made famous by the moonshiners of 50 or 60 years ago. 
This course is one of the few gravel races in the southeast where a mountain bike is likely a disadvantage, and the best bike for the race would either be a cyclocross bike or a road bike equipped with wide or cross-like tires in the 28-millimeter range. And the majority of the front riders in all categories do just that. It's a hilly course for sure with less, uh, with just a little bit less than 50 miles, but with more than plen- uh, a small amount of climbing um, at 5,300 feet and the majority of that coming on two significant climbs of around 800 feet or so in gain. But after those two climbs at the 15-mile mark of the infamous Bethany Church Road climb and at 30 miles for the Cherry Grove climb, and the remainder of the course has a few very stout, steep, shorter climbs averaging 14 to 15%. The finish is slightly uphill on the run-in to the Love Valley Western Town for the finish. Uh, in the men's open division, a large pack of nearly 25 already whittled down on the early rollers from the original 170 riders entered became even more so when a group of three rolled off the front in the early goings of the first climb of the day, just 16 miles in. That group contained Reed Baloney, William Harrison, and an unknown rider who quickly put time into the five chasers behind that included Baloney's Carmichael Training Systems co-worker in the form of Josh Whitmore who was more than content to sit in and let the others do the work with the built-in excuse of not working against his teammate assumed by all those involved. The three would move fast as a unit, rolling strongly and not forcing any surges or attacks as they hit the descent and rolled toward the halfway point on the valley approach to the biggest climb of the day. Behind the group, they had become a little bit disjointed, and some were overworked from the effort of the last climb, and Whitmore had used a little finesse on easily forcing some gaps as he dropped skillfully off the first big descent. On to the next climb, and the front trio was now to, down to just two, as Baloney and Harrison were quickly distancing their companion, who was absorbed by the five racers midway up the climb and woefully spit out the back. Across the top of the big climb, and Harrison and Baloney were locked one, two, with a four-minute advantage. Behind the group of five had begun to disintegrate on the climb, all seemingly setting their own pace and letting the cards fall as they may. Across the top, and as Whitmore forced the pace again, keen to realize the group up front had the gap needed to stay away and using his descending abilities to force the pace to put him up on those behind. Up front, Baloney and Harrison played a little cat and mouse in the final miles, pushing each other over the steeper, shorter climbs and into Love Valley, the two rolled nearly on top of one another. Baloney would hit the sprint hard and manage the victory with Clemens Bicycles Harrison right on his wheel in a time of 2 hours and 32 minutes and 15 seconds. Behind the front two, the chasers had managed a regrouping on the eight miles of rolling hills into the finish with plenty of searching in the closing miles to dictate the final order. At the line, it was Michael Potter in for third, with fourth to Loden Spencer, and fifth, to Baloney's fellow CTS coach and teammate, Whitmore. In the women's open division, it was top performers from two different segments of the sport, with Nina Lachlan, a pro road rider and coach, facing off against top NUE and endurance racer, Carla Williams. The two would quickly separate themselves from the rest of the women's field in the third group on the road, chasing the leaders with top age group men racers early in the race. In the roads leading to the first big climb, Williams would suffer a small mechanical issue, dropping a chain having a few derailleur issues afterwards that would have her out of the group and roadside sorting out those problems. 
not long enough to drop her out of contention, but certainly long enough to drop her from the group she'd been riding in that contained her competitor, Nina Lachlan. Williams would remount quickly and be on the road chasing Solo for 8 to 10 miles before being joined by a small group of male category riders coming up to her from behind, which assisted in keeping the pressure steady on Lachlan, now one minute up on the road. Lachlan would continue her push, taking her turn in the pace line of five to six riders, and behind, Williams would do the same, assisting in the pacemaking on the second climb of the day, where the two women crested just 70 seconds apart. Neither would know the time gap, but one spectator would relate that it was so close that they couldn't believe they didn't know each other was there. Both Lachlan and Williams' groups would occasionally absorb riders as well as lose riders as they drew toward the finish. At the end, Nina Lachlan of Dallas DNA Pro Cycling takes the win in two hours, 46 minutes, with Carla Williams of Joe's Bike Shop just 30 seconds, 30 seconds behind in second place. Third place would arrive at the line nine minutes later in the form of junior female phenom Hannah Ahrensman of 2016 professional cycling team to round out the top three. So, Absolutely amazing. Hey, this isn't stellar racing, but it's it's not something we typically cover because it's gen- under three hours, and generally that's what we kind of target as yeah. to being endurance mountain bike racing. But um, this race, this course was sixty percent dirt and gravel, um, and when you consider that the men, the men's average twenty miles an hour on those type of that type, that type of terrain with two. 800 to 1,000 foot climbs. I mean, that's some serious, serious fast racing and descending because they were descending on those same dirt roads. They weren't, um, you know, the the pavement was pretty much just to get them to and from the different climbs. So, uh, it's kind of that time it, of the year, too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we definitely have a lot of gravel racing early and then a ton of gravel racing late. Um, generally, the summer months are, you choose your. Pick a poison road, mountain you, bike, whatever. But you, you find a lot happen. of the same, you know. You find some of the same folks. You right? do, but th- this time at this time of year is when you actually see guys that you, you'll they'll never race each other again. I mean, perfect example is this women's field where you have a, a pro woman rider on the road racing against a pro woman rider who races the NUE, yeah. and you don't ever see them really mix. And um, it's kind of cool to see. Okay, who's who is the fastest pro woman <laughs> roadie or pro woman mountain biker? So it's yeah. kind of cool to see that. Um, and uh, the other the other thing that was absolutely amazing is Hannah Aaronsman. She's 17 years old. She just turned pro this year, racing for 2016 professional cycling. Dang, uh, amazing, amazing! And she, um, I'm seeing her more and more. And she doesn't discriminate. Um, she's uh, she does very well in cyclocross. So that's kind of where she kind of got a name for herself. But um, she'll race road. She'll race mountain bike. Saw her this weekend at Six Hours of Warrior Creek. Uh, she's she'll, she doesn't care. Uh, it's cycling and racing. She's going to be there. That's pretty cool. And she's got a lot of years ahead of her to do it. So and she has a lot of years. And she and that's what's cool is she's keeping her options open, figuring out where she fits in. And um, and good luck to her because she's uh she's definitely a talent. And uh, we're, I'm sure we are going to be talking about her in the future. Yeah. Um, and speaking of six hours of Warrior Creek, um, that was held just this past uh, Saturday. As always, very popular race here in the southeast runs run completely on the Warrior Creek Trail System, which encircles the Warrior Creek Campground located just outside of North Wilkesboro, North Carolina, and it borders the Kerscott Reservoir. Now, this annual event, now in its eighth year, is a gathering of the tribe, so to speak, at the beginning of the season, with many racers 
both in the form of the very popular duo team relay categories as well as the solo racers, typically using it as the first important race of the year. The courses on those iconic trails, known also as Wilkes Bermo, do the super flowy berm course with 2,500 berms per lap. Um, that keeps the speed super high. Um, it's almost like the world's longest BMX track. Um, the course with has four significant climbs or so, each gain around 200 feet or so, um, but generally are not more than three or four minutes of a hard effort at any single time. The course definitely favors the locals who have learned how to ride those corners that exist like no other for a full trail system. And each lap is approximately 12 miles in length with an additional three-mile start loop that's about 50% pavement, 50% loamy, fresh-cut grass and trail added on only just simply break up that field as it starts. Um, it's, it's an amazing race. Um, and the, the, the race itself is, um, so competitive in the opening, <laughs> in the opening miles. Um, you would, I saw you would, a video. Uh, yeah. You would swear it was, uh, people hauling out. Yeah. You would swear it was, you know, the beginning of a 30 minute race, <laughs> the way they start. Um, there is a lot. There's a lot to be said for it, though. Uh, the single track, uh, just because it is so high speed, um, without averaging 13, 14 miles an hour on all portions. So your downhills are, you know, in the 17, 18 mile an hour range. So not a whole lot of opportunities to pass, and there's not a ton of climbing because you can often roll a lot of the climbs, with the exception of those. Um, bigger climbs on the course. Um, but those bigger climbs on the course are only three, four minutes. Um, doesn't, it just doesn't give enough, a big opportunity. And usually by the middle of the first lap or the beginning of the second lap, that course has spread out the field nicely and you encounter people occasionally on the course, but, um, it's not everybody on top of each other unless they're necessarily racing for a specific position in the, in the top of the fields. Were you um, there, Mark? I was there. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a, it's a really, really good time. It's, um, it's not certainly, it's not like, um, the party atmosphere that, uh, 24 hours, the old Pueblo has, but it certainly has like a good, um, kind of like a community feel to it. Everyone gathers after the races, there's food and, um, everyone chit chatting and nobody wants to leave. And they take over the campground in the week before the actual campground opens and so the only people staying in that campground are the people racing. And so you have a whole campground of, you know, I don't know, 75 sites filled with just mountain bikers. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a real nice vibe, I guess. Um, so anyhow, this year, as always, there's tons of people showing up that are looking to really make an impact, see where their legs are. It's kind of cool because you sometimes get, endurance guys versus um, maybe more your traditional guys. You've got people, um, the endurance guys who may be racing in a duo category. So you never know who's going to show up or who's going to race what categories, but there's always going to be um, some big names show up uh, to race the event. So plenty of top competitors, um, including new Michigan transplant Scott Hoffner, living relatively local to the trails. Gordon Wadsworth was there. Giant Racing's Dylan Johnson was there. Uh, Watts Dixon, Eric Haverty, Carla Williams, who we just talked about um, in the uh, last race, uh, Jeff Clayton, Nick Pag, William Harrison, all competing in the solo categories. But additionally, top racers, like I had mentioned, 
or on hand. People like Bradford Purley, Chuck Champion, Tristan Cowie, Brian Sheedy, Tommy Rogers, Thomas Boylan, Rich Dillon, Casey Armstrong, Carrie Lowry, Rick, uh, Wes Dixon, Josh and Deb Whitmore, all competing in the duo categories. And what that does is guaranteed the solo riders will never get lonely at the front of the field. Now, at the start, I've previously mentioned it's like a short track race with all of the top contenders of the solo divisions comfortably tucked into the front 40 or so. In the case of Hoffner and Johnson, they were actually at the front of the field with Cowie, leading going one, two, three in the opening uh, kilometers of the race. On to the opening mile of trail before a return to the single track, and three open men racers were sitting in the top five, all being led by the turbo power of Tristan Cowie, racing duo with Chuck Champion, who would eventually put down the fastest laps of the race. With other racers like Gordon Wadsworth, Watts Dixon, and Jeff Clayton sitting easily inside the top 20 as they began the first full lap of the Warrior Creek campground as they passed through the start-finish line. In the men's open race, it quickly developed into a two-man race to front, with Dylan Johnson putting in a huge effort on the first lap climbs and taking a few risks on the descent to pull out a 90-second advantage, an advantage that on this course definitely means out of sight, out of mind, due to its rolling terrain in frequent corners with dense tree lines and switchbacks. Dylan would put out an advantage of three minutes midway, midway through lap three, where he would then snap off his seat post, forcing a short delay trail side that then forced Johnson to continue the lap without a seat. The opportunity had Hoffner cashing Johnson in the last third of the lap before opening up a bit of a gap, a gap that Hoffner would later think he could easily capitalize on. But before Hoffner could even consider the delay behind him to Johnson, Johnson was back on his wheel after a chase that lasted only 20 minutes. It would later be found out that Johnson pulled into his pit area and had a ready-made seat post and saddle ready to go. Who does that? Who has a ready-to-go on a whim for a six-hour race that's technically not damaging equipment? Who has a seat post and saddle at the correct angle ready to go? Yeah, I... Not, not Dylan I. Johnson does. That's who. Dylan Johnson has one. <laughs> I don't even have an extra seat post. No, no I'd have to rob one off there. of another bike. Right. Yeah. yeah. So he only dropped down about two minutes and easily within a half lap had been got back up into the lead. Hoffner would later relate that Dylan was just at a different level in all aspects of the trail. Fit, fast, and just rolling the flowing single track, Dylan would go out and create a gap of nearly five minutes through lap four, putting down lap times of just over one hour consistently, with Hofner showing times that had him losing about a minute or more per lap. Through lap three, Hofner would be caught by a surgeon Gordon Wadsworth racing in the single-speed division, and together they tried to team up to reel Johnson in to no avail. Behind those two, William Harrison of Clemens Bicycle was putting in some very consistent lap times. And before Hoffner knew he had it coming, the company was joining him. And Wadsworth was then chasing Johnson. Johnson would continue his full steam ahead approach with no evidence of coasting or relaxing on the course, which required hundreds of reaccelerations per lap. Into the last lap, and Johnson would hold a five-minute advantage and then negative split the last lap with his third fastest lap on the last lap of the six he completed in just over 62 minutes to win the solo open men's division of the six hours of warrior creek 
Behind Johnson, Hoffner would surge in the first half of the last lap to put time into Harrison with Wadsworth splitting the pair. Hoffner would roll in with a comfortable lead on third place Harrison of about five minutes. So in the end, first place Dylan Johnson of Giant Factory Team, second place to Scott Hoffner of CIC Racing, third place to William Harrison of Clemens Bicycle, fourth place to Nick Bragg of Piney Flats Bicycle, and fifth place to Byron Rice of Clemens Bicycle. In the women's division, Carla Williams of Joe's Bike Shop mixed it up in the front 25% of all racers and recorded incredibly fast times of right near 110 with all laps within three minutes of that average time. Super consistent, strong on the climbs, and proficient on the berms. Carla registered an effort that put her handing the second-place open women's racer eight to ten minutes per lap behind her. Strong and consistent for sure, Carla Williams of Joe's Bike Shop for first. Paige Witherington of Pisgah uh, Tavern, 40 minutes back. Third place to Zdenka uh, Warsham of Constellation Cycling in third, a further 14 minutes back, with all three top women competing, uh, completing five laps. Fourth place went to Mason Hopkins of Live Giant, and fifth place to Sarah Maloney of Happy Tooth Racing. In the single speed field, as previously noted, Gordon Wadsworth was right up in the front, sitting third to fifth all day in the solo field, and was the cream of the crop at at one point putting in a one-hour flat time on the second lap to bridge to the front group after a not-so-singles-friendly pavement start. By lap two, he had joined Hoffner and rode much of the race within earshot of the men's open leaders, and in doing so, put minutes into a very fit Watts Dixon over Volden Cogs, who was riding just in front of Chris Mormon of Farnforth Bicycles before being joined by him as Dixon took a bit of a nature break early in lap four. Dixon would begin to fade in the final laps as Mormon kept a more consistent lap time and would go on to finish in second with Dixon holding up for third. Up front, Wadsworth would be the only single-speed rider to complete six, six laps and a growing margin through lap five to his category chasers of nearly 30 minutes. So in first place, Gordon Wadsworth of Blue Ridge Cyclery, Chris Mormon in second, Watts Dixon of Revolting Cogs in third, Steve Jones of Reedy Keep Bicycles in fourth, and Eric Haggerty of J.A. King Racing in fifth. In other notable divisions, Jeff Clayton, who we just previously mentioned uh, for the True Grit Race, who... Um, was racing in the 50-plus division, won by 50 minutes um, for the Georgia Neurosurgical Institute. He finished five laps convincingly with David Less and Patrick McFeely filling the podium in the Masters division. In the women's single-speed division, it was truly a race of of attrition, but in the end, Rebecca Bump uh, takes the win for J.A. King Racing with Sherry George of Bomb Pop Racing keeping it close just seven minutes behind both completing four laps. Third place went to Beth Militich um, for the women's single speed. So um, absolutely, um, the the racing was, when you actually get, got a chance to, to pull the lap times, and I've been sitting over near the timers table with uh, Eric Weber, who was running the timing for the event. And absolutely, I mean, watching these guys, do lap after lap after lap at times that I can't even approach on a single lap. Uh, disheartening for me. <laughs> um, I mean, literally, I you know I got a chance yeah. to go out and ride the course um, the day before, and man, they 
you know, I put, I put down as I went as hard as I could go. Now I don't ride those trails very often, but I went as hard as I could go. And the best that I could do was a one Oh five. And there is no way I could have repeated it. And those guys were pulling one hour, one Oh two, one Oh threes, just over and over and over and over and over again. Consistently, um, you know, yeah. And Wadsworth said did a hour flat. Last yeah. Somewhere. Yeah. Single speed. Um, yeah. It, and you know, that's a really single speed friendly course because it's so flowy. It really works well with a single speed, but yeah. it still doesn't, doesn't mean that you're at an advantage to be on a single speed. No. Um, you're talking to him and Scott Hoffner after the race, literally right after they finished. Um, Wadsworth, you know, said that it's just, it's just acceleration after acceleration after acceleration because you're either turning and reaccelerating or you're you know going up a short little climb or yeah. you're reaccelerating over the top of a small little rock garden or whatever it's so twisty and turny that you're constantly reaccelerating um you know and I asked him I said well, what would you say it's like a 6 hour criterium and he said that's exactly what it's like it's like doing a 6 hour <laughs> criterium because you're having to jump out of every corner and he said you know it's not as much of an endurance thing um, it's just um, surge after surge after surge after surge after surge, and because you you can never relax, and your whole body hurts because you're always the way the berms are built. You're always having to use a bit of finesse and you know yeah. torso to you know kind of you know put a little movement in just to um, you know keep yourself flowing right. So, uh, but uh, as always, I love going to that race even when I'm not racing it. I love going to that race. It's a stellar, stellar event. Um, so well managed. Um, this is the last year that Jason and Paul are kind of at the head of it. Um, they'll be turning it over to other people in their club to continue running it. Uh, but Brushy Mountain always puts on great events. Um, rumors of other events that they've put on that are very well known coming back. That's hopefully in the cards. But um, here's, you know, originally this was to be the last year of the six hours of Warrior Creek. And now um, it's turned out that it's going to continue into the future, which is a very, very good thing for cycling in this area. And it's, it's an amazing event. And it really does raise a lot of money for that trail system. So I'm very happy to see those guys continuing. Cool. Very nice. Very nice. Um, I've got... You, got, you got some gravel? Yeah, another gravel. The... Let's do some gravel. Gravel. The Land Run 100 in Oklahoma. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, uh, how about I run through the women's race first? Oh, very good. Put the important people first. Got to mix it up. Yep. Katie Stremke found herself in a large group at the beginning of the race that would quickly be strung out at the first unrideable section of thick, muddy clay road, which is very common in this time of the year gravel races some nasty muddy clay type road near you're out in oklahoma uh the road would go back and forth between rideable and hike a bike with stremke reporting her feet were blistered up from hiking by the time she reached the first oasis stremke rode off and on with karen pritchard through the next few miles of mixed walk ride muddy road before pulling away in chase of the lead woman Katie Stremke caught the lead woman around mile 40 that had gotten a lead early in the race. I actually don't have the name of that racer, but she was fighting derailleur issues, and Stremke was able to get away on some rolling hills. The two would go back and forth a couple times while fighting the hike-a-bike sections of mud, but Stremke would end up rolling into the 50-mile checkpoint with a small lead. Stremke and the other female racer were also caught by a train 
after the 50-mile checkpoint. But Stremke would roll out solo after the train passed while the other racer was dealing with a broken derailleur and would eventually drop from the race. Stremke took turns pulling with some of the men racers to the finish line to win the women's race. Katie Stremke of Move Up Endurance Coaching crossed the line in 8 hours and 21 minutes, with Karen Pritchard coming across the line in 8 hours and 55 minutes for second place, and Katie McGuire finishing third in just over 9 minutes. Uh, Stremke's husband, Andrew Stremke, actually won the men's single-speed division, finishing fifth overall in 7 hours and 24 minutes. Uh, And with the men, a small, uh, small group broke away from the lead pack about 15 miles in on the sloppy uphill section of road. A couple miles later, a really sloppy and sticky climb would start taking riders out with mud so thick it was lock up your tires. Several riders were stacking up in it, and some with derailleur hangers sucked into their spokes as leaders started to disappear. Jay Peterberry was riding through a bunch of the deep mud while a lot of the rest of the field was hiking it. Jay ended up snapping off his rear derailleur with the mud so thick it was piling up, broke it right off, but executed a roadside single-speed conversion and kept riding. Rick Mosley had gotten away from the lead pack during a nasty, muddy hike-a-bike section of road and was now off the front while some riders were dunking their bikes in a huge water hole to try and clean the thick clay dirt off their bikes before hammering back down the rideable road. You can find some pictures out there on the web of like people dunking their entire bike in a mud hole in a water hole. Seen it. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> I've seen that before at races. Yeah, that's that gets bad when yeah. you're willing to just, to risk the damage to the, all the bearings to just because you can't ride it at all anymore. Toss it uh, in there. Toss it in there. Give yeah. it a shot. Yep. Another nasty section of road put the riders back on foot again prior to the 50 mile checkpoint. Austin Morris and Evan Fast broke away running on foot in chase for the leader while the rest of the chase pack stayed at a walking pace. Rick Mosley would end up dropping from the race with a broken derailleur while Bob Cummins and some other riders, including Jay Peterberry, would come through the checkpoint in time to get held up by a train. And yes, I said Jay Peterberry. Jay was (laughs) hanging in the race with his makeshift single speed. Austin Morris and Evan Fast were on their way to the finish line as they had made it through before the train. Jay Peterberry and Matt Ankeny would take off in chase of the leaders as soon as the train passed with Bob Cummings on their tail. Cummings took the opportunity to attack on a paved section of road leading out of town, putting a gap on Matt Ankeny and Jay Peterberry. Ankeny answered and chased for miles with no luck of closing the gap. Cummings eventually caught his teammates, Austin Morris and Evan Fast, and the three of them would ride to the finish together with Austin Morris taking the win in seven hours and one minute, Evan Fast a second later in second place, and Bob Cummings back another second in third for a podium dominated by the Panaracer Stands Bicycle Exchange team. Uh, and I can't finish without mentioning that Jay Peterberry of Salsa Cycles still pulled off a fourth-place finish after having to do some mechanical work pretty early in the race, converting his bike to a single speed after snapping his derailleur off. Yeah, and literally, if I'm not mistaken, this this race was literally – Days after yeah, it was, uh, ITI, like he be. literally flew, like literally finished the 350 mile ITI, went home, got back on a plane and went to Oklahoma. Yeah, because it was this race was, uh, well, you know, at least a week and a half ago. Yeah. So, yeah. Was, uh, yeah. I, I, I remember him like yeah, he had so much time he had to finish the ITI because he had to beat this other race. <laughs> 
Yeah, and he's done a lot of racing this winter. He raced all winter. Yeah. I mean, he was doing endurance yeah. racing this winter, and he was out. He was out in uh, the Midwest doing doing short fat bike races too in the Great yeah. Lakes fat, fat Bike Series, covering yeah. it all. Yep, he's he's doing a little bit of everything, and he's also he's also moved. Um, you know, when uh, he was training for uh, the Manga um, at one point, when that was going to be a big million dollar race, um, he had actually gotten a little taken a bit of a scientific approach because before that his, his training had pretty much just ride a lot or ride a lot of hills and um he actually got a bit of a scientific approach because he knew he had needed to add speed and um, i'm pretty sure now he's training with power he's training um doing interval work which he'd never done before you know taking a real good big cue from all the different sensors he can use heart rate and power and things like that and so it's kind of cool to see him evolve even though he's kind of um you know, he's, he's known for bikepacking. I think he's kind of evolved into more of a complete cyclist now. Yeah. And he can do it all. He can race it all, and he's showing it. Yeah. You know, here's a 100-mile gravel race that he's doing very well in. He so. was on the podium at, uh, like, an 18-mile fat bike single track race at yeah. uh, Cuyuna here in Minnesota this winter. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's continue with the gravel. Uh, this is a race that actually took place about a month ago and we didn't have the details just prior to the last podcast. Cause I think it had occurred like literally the day before we recorded the, the last full podcast, but Southern cross Southern cross is one of the original gravel races now promoted by Lisa Randall and the mountain goat productions team. The same folks who put on fool's gold in the NUE series, but Southern cross actually takes, a few of the roads familiar to the Fool's Gold competitors, and for those familiar, that means long climbs. The course is right near 55 miles in length with a total elevation gained of about 6,500 feet. And if you calculate that out to a 100-mile race, that means you would be 13,000 feet of climbing for a 50-mile race or so. It's definitely got some climbing into it. Yeah. The course also contains a short bit of cyclocross-friendly single track, but what most people remember definitely are the two big climbs on the course with one rising 2000 feet over seven miles and the other rising 1500 feet over a much more gradual nine miles, a true mix of gravel and pavement with both climbs purely on gravel forest roads. But the need to is to be in a group is definitely an advantage on the flatter portion Valley roads where drafting is actually a huge advantage. In the men's race, a small group of 10 rolled away on that first climb, containing many of the favorites in the form of Josh Whitmore, Bradford Purley, Thomas Golas, Kyle Ellis, and Brian Toon. Soon that group was becoming a bit looser as the climb began to wear on the legs, and a group of five were quickly moving up the road together. Those five were Purley Golas, Tim Proctor, Wesley Garland and Ellis, who made quick work of the first climb, but had shattered the group time with Josh Whitmore completing the climb a minute back of the front five, but two minutes up on the remains of the lead pack behind now down to just three. Whitmore would ride solo for much of the remainder of the race, never getting a chance to see the five up front, who had gained another minute on him by the top of the second big climb. Whitmore would use his descending to ensure himself of remaining in the front of the others, but without gaining much on the leaders. Back up front, Golas would gain a small gap over the top of the final climb and onto the descent. And in the f- 
in the long gravel-filled, sketchy high-speed descent, split the floor behind so that everyone was riding on their own, waxing and waning in a loose group spread over 15 seconds. Into the Montelus Winery Complex, and Thomas Golas of DRT Consulting takes the win, winning the overall as well as the 40-49 to category. Behind him, another 40-plus Masters rider in the form of Tim Proctor had kept it very close in the closing miles to take second, just 15 seconds back for Bicycle Station. Third would be the first open category racer, Bradford Purley, just 8 seconds down. Kyle Ellis would be another 45 seconds later, then West Garland for fifth. Josh Whitmore of Organic Valley would finish a tenacious sixth overall and fourth in the men's open division two minutes later on a day that saw him chasing solo for the final 45 miles. In the women's race, the top three women all hit the bottom of the first climb and then the top of the first big climb, that snot knocker of a 2,000-footer, within a minute of each other. But that's where it ended as Cat Sweet of Shift Racing got herself into a little group that pulled away, using the larger group to put time into those behind, which included Carla Williams, chasing just a minute down on that first big descent. Every woman for themselves with the advantage of finding a larger group to ride in outside your category becomes a huge advantage in tactic. Cat Sweet would roll into the Montelus Winery, the Southern Cross Women's Champion, in a time of 3 hours and 12 minutes for shift racing. Carla Williams would finish 10 minutes down in second for Joe's Bike Shop with Jen Nielsen of Southpaw Cycles in for third, an additional 11 minutes back. Wow, that's a lot of racing today. That was a lot of races, yeah. That's a lot of racing. It's and we should have probably this- not going to slow down, though. No, it's not. It's just going to pick up. Um, and with you now part of this podcast, we're going to try to get as many different sh- stuff coverage as we can go. You know, looking back on all the people that we mentioned on this show, eh, there's an argument we could have called this the Carla Williams podcast or uh, the Josh Whitmore podcast. I mean, those guys are all over the Southeast racing right now and not just racing um, locally. I mean, those guys, you know, we've got we've got people racing all over the country and um, I'm so glad to see racing is here, um, and we are finally into the season. And it gets so easy when we can find the information um, to put out to people um, and what races to cover. It gets a lot to be a little bit easier in finding those big races. So, yeah, um, really looking forward to the season. Yeah, um, and, and appreciate the the folks that connect with us and uh, answers yes. back when we're trying to get information about the race and try yes. to catch race stories. You yes. really appreciate that. Right. And, and and speaking of that, if if you guys know, all of our listeners, if you know of a race you think we should be covering or a racer you think we should be interviewing or a promoter you think we should be talking to, um, get in touch with us at mark at mountainbikeradio.com or steve at mountainbikeradio.com and drop us a line. Just tell us, hey, you guys maybe should consider covering this race or that race. Um, we know of the big races, and if they're races we've covered in the past, certainly we're going to do our best to cover them. But again, the information that we get about those races often comes from speaking to the racers themselves or the promoters themselves. Um, and you can't, you know, pull blood from a stone, so to speak. And so we do our best to get that information. But what we want this show to be is about the stories inside the races and the highlights of how the races were won and not just be reporting the results. And so we're doing our best to making sure that it continues to be interesting um, by giving you the hows and whys of the race. So, um, but we couldn't do it without 
our listeners and without the people inside the races giving us all that information. So we'd like to thank them straight from our hearts. And I truly mean that because this show wouldn't exist without them. So. Yep. Hey, good stuff. Yep. Hey, what do you got going on? We're here kind of winding down the show, but what do you got going on? Anything in the near future? You know, I am going to go do a gravel ride here in about a week and a half. It's uh, okay. like 20, 30 minutes from my house, the uh, the Wooly Mammoth Gravel Classic, I think it's called. Okay. Uh, looks looks like there's going to be quite a few people there. Uh, some people show up to ride it, and uh, definitely quite a few people show up to, to race it. There's a 100 miles, 70, and a 30. Oh, okay. So gonna, some pretty long distance races. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, a lot yeah. of hilly climbing in, in uh, Wisconsin over by the St. Croix River Valley. So that'll be fun. That's, that's in a, a week and a half or two here. Okay. So Going to do that. And then uh, I probably should do some like actual specific training. Maybe go do some hill repeats or some intervals or, or something before Mohican. But I got a little yeah. bit, I got a little bit of time. But I, I do need to get a little training block in. I haven't been on my bike that much here the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, probably right before we do our next podcast, which is hopefully we'll do another one in here in another couple of weeks or so. Uh, but of course I've got Kohuta coming up. Um, oh, yeah. still feel, still feel a little under trained. Don't feel super confident about it, but, uh, it's coming around. I actually did, um, a couple of training days over the weekend where it felt like I've exceeded a plateau that I had been at for a little bit. You know, sometimes yes. you get those plateaus where you're two weeks, you just don't feel like you're any stronger and all of a sudden, whoop, all of a sudden, you've got you know a little bit more power, a little lower heart rate, and uh, so eh, getting a little bit more confident. I have like benchmarks I have, and sometimes they're numbers like power, and sometimes they're just distances I want to be able to ride um, as as I approach like a hundred mile race and things like that. Um, speaking of hundred mile races, uh, Steve and I are going to have a little little like wager um, for. Um, the next podcast. And if you guys are interested in participating in it, and there's, it'll probably mostly be just um, for bragging rights. Um, but pick the winners of the NUE for 2016. So open men's, uh, open women's, single speed, and uh, Masters 50 plus. Now, several big um, highlights in this show could definitely dictate where some of those favorites may fall. But also, um, there are also some, like we already know, that it, the symbols may not be competing in a full series this year. So, um, But it seems like Carla Williams, who did incredibly well in the NUE series last year, seems to be on form this year. You know, there's lots of little things. You know, Gordon Wadsworth seems to be right back where he was. And then on top of that, um, you know, Keck Baker's not really sure he's going to do a full series. So anyhow, send us an email, drop us a line, go on um, our Facebook page, The Last Aid Station, on Facebook, easy to find. Send us a little note. Tell us well, who you think is going to finish in the top uh, position in the series of the NUE for 2016. Yeah, maybe we'll just see who, who gets Yeah, We'll get a discussion going on, and we'll talk about it um, the next show. And whoever picks it the best, uh, we'll, we'll figure out a good prize for you. We'll maybe get some mountain bike radio. Um, a t-shirt or um, maybe a hat or stickers and stuff like that out to you, but we'll definitely have some kind of prize. If there's more than one person that picks the same people, then we'll maybe take the four people that did very well and we'll um, maybe do a raffle to figure out who wins the grand prize. But yeah, just, just a cool discussion. Um, we're now into the season. We kind of see where everybody's at and um, see, 
let us know who, who you think is going to do well. And I'll, I'll post something up on the Last Aid Station Facebook page and see uh, who wants to contribute to that discussion. So I think cool. that's it. Yeah, that's a yeah. full show. That's a full show. Um, but anyhow, this is Mark and Steve. Thank you very much for joining us on The Last Aid Station. Um, we hope you guys continue to enjoy what you're hearing here on the podcast. And until we see you again, hopefully we'll see you on the trails or maybe at a race. We'll definitely see some of you at races this year. Um, until then, ride safe, and we'll see you soon. Take care.